What is Peace Brain? Peace Brain is the synergistic connection between our mental and emotional bodies, blending the electrical power of the mind with the magnetic force of the heart. Listen and explore how to create unity worldwide as we blend science and metaphysics and open our hearts and minds to the possibilities of peace on earth and create the life we are each destined for. Featured guests range from angel communicators to zoologists and everything in between. Now here is your host, Dr. Gail Lash. Hello and welcome. This is your host, Dr. Gail Lash, and welcome to the Peace Brain Show. I'm happy you're here today. Um, today, I'm very excited. We have a friend of mine that I've known for years, Jennifer Miller. She is an animal activist. Uh, we're going to be talking about parrot rescues and all kinds of wonderful ways to save the earth and, and the animals and the climate and all kinds of good stuff, uh, how, to, how to be one with the earth, uh, but to really be, to make a difference. Um, so stay tuned for that and of course, at the end of the show, I always do a wonderful peace brain meditation, so please stay tuned for that. It'll be transformative and amazing. And as always, I open the show with a quote, and this one you probably have heard. Uh, I really like it. It's from Chief Seattle, and it says, We have not woven the web of life. Our great spirit and Mother Earth have done it all. We are but one thread within it. Whatever we do to the web, we do to ourselves. Therefore, do good things. All are bound together. All things connect. And I really like this quote because really as Chief Seattle sums it up, we are all connected. Whatever each one of us does affects everyone else. And it, it is like these threads of life all connected, woven together in tapestries. And we each have our story. We each have our, our neighborhoods, our people we work with at work. The, the people that are under our, quote, sphere of influence. But we still are all connected globally. And whatever we do on one side of the earth affects the other side of the earth as well. So we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about how when you travel and you get to know other cultures, when you get to know the, the animals that live in different places around the world, that we're all connected. And particularly, you know, me as a biologist, <laughs> I uh, I definitely believe that we are so connected to the wildlife and the forests and the, the, the natural elements of this earth. Uh, of course, our bodies are naturally made of the earth. But also, we, just, we depend on each other. We depend on the earth. We depend on the animals for all kinds of things. And we need to start thinking of them in a different way, in a way that is more of a brotherhood, sisterhood, more of a, um, you know, we're, we're not necessarily... Oh, this is a whole other discussion here, and we could have a whole other radio show about this, but we're not necessarily a superior species to any of the other species around the planet. Um, we are, if you want to get into the religion of it, of course, uh, we have our spirituality and our, our creator and the way that we think about ourselves as human beings, as being superior, if you will, of being in care of creation. But that aside... It's really about how do we work with these other species and animals and think about them to, to give them a chance to live well and, and for their well-being. So with that said, let me introduce 
my guest, and I'm really, really happy to have her here. Her name is Jennifer Miller, and she is an animal activist, and we'll be talking a lot about that today. She promotes our connections to the animal kingdoms, how the way we think about the animals, the way we eat our food, <laughs> and, uh, and develop our relationship with animals, both public and personal. She used to have, um, in West Virginia, a wonderful cafe called Mission Savvy Cafe. Uh, she's the founder of it, and as an animal rights activist, uh, Mission Savvy was all about the consumer-driven campaign for a better world. It was about putting products on the market that are good for the planet, both animals and people. And it was a raw, vegan, and organic cafe. Uh, so Jennifer knows a lot about food and a lot about how to eat in a sustainable way with the animals and the planet. And now she's really focusing, as she's been doing this for years as well, uh, about parrots and about all the citizens around the world and policy of how they actually fall into this, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this, this category between the pet trade and the endangered species trade, um, or there shouldn't be trade, but we'll talk about that too. <laughs> um, so they're, they're in this kind of limbo um, field of policy where they don't fall into like your cats and dogs or with the wild endangered species around the world and how we can breed them and sell them in the, in the economic trade. Uh, you buy your local parrot at a pet store if you were to do that. I hope not. But, um, you know, they live for longer sometimes than humans live. So what is going to happen to them? There's all these kinds of questions we're going to talk about. So, again, uh, Jennifer Miller is my guest, and you can find her on Instagram. And her contact is at, on Instagram is Jen, J-E-N, underscore, and then of the jungle. So Jen underscore of the jungle. Welcome, Jennifer, to the Peace Brain Show. Thank you, Gail. It's great to be here with you and connect after all of these years. I know. It's been a while. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, yeah, let's take a breath for a moment. You, We knew each other in many different sort of venues, zoos and conservation and, and all kinds of things. But, but right now, because today is Wednesday, September 4th, 2019, you are escaping Hurricane Dorian from Savannah, and you're actually staying with us with your dog Luca. Um, and I, you know, I send out prayers and well-being for all the people in the eye, in the way of this storm. Um, I want to I want to open the show by talking just a minute about your dog, because I, I want to hear the story, remember, of how she found you, because you have traveled the world, you've done amazing things, and you were in Chile you've told me, when you found her. So do you mind sharing that story? Sure, absolutely. Um, she's here laying on my feet right now. Um, yeah, I'm, I have, like you said, traveled around the world for a number of different kinds of animal rescue operations. And if there was ever a moment for me to want to bring back an animal from a country, I was propositioned with it every single time <laughs> and and I was just in the flow of doing the work and coming home going to the next project coming home um, but when I was in Chile I um, was 
on a piece of property and that I was living with with a number of other people traveling in for conservation and and um, outdoor recreation and that sort of thing. And it's a piece of property that's tucked away almost into the forest. Um, but there's a road that runs on the edge of the property. And Luca was hit by a car, and she was still able to move on her own, but her face was badly uh, injured. So like half of her, the skin on half of her face had actually fallen off. And there were a couple people that had saw it, that had seen it happen, and they tried to approach her, but she was terrified and wouldn't let anybody get close to her. She started running into the piece of property that I was staying on, and at this point I was inside of a building. I was not outside. I didn't know this had happened. And she ran right up to the building where I was, and everybody there knows I do animal rescue, so they called me immediately and said, Jen, Jen, you have to come see this dog. So I, I ran out immediately, and she put herself in between my legs. Mm. And, yeah, yeah. And so it was in that moment I go into my rescue mode, and I go, okay, we're doing what it takes. We're getting in the car. We're going to go find ourselves a vet, and we're going to take care of you. And I thankfully we found an amazing veterinarian in southern Chile. This is like um, backwoods country, basically. And... He was able to spend two weeks with her going through surgery and treatment and um, getting her face back to normal and all sewed up. And um, so at that point, we had developed a relationship. I was the only one that that she would allow to get close to her. And so I took that as a privilege and um, as a gift. And I was going to do everything I could to protect her. And wow. so she, she she just became mine. She 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 became everything to me in that period of time because I promised her that she would get out of this and she would be okay. Um, and so then I started looking into bringing her back to the states. And after a long process of back and forth and with the airlines who don't fly dogs out of Chile to America, you have to hire a third party service to do it for you. Um, it took us two months of logistics to finally get her on a plane and come back to the US. And and I said to her if you just make it if you just make it to Washington DC, you'll have a beautiful American life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so she got I had to leave a day before her, before her flight. And so all I could do was cross my fingers with tears running down my eyes that she was going to make it to the US and her flight ended up being delayed, so she was stuck in a crate for two days before she actually landed. And mm. But then she got here. She got here, and I have not allowed myself to travel since. <laughs> I have not allowed myself to leave her side, and it's been in December. It'll be three years. Wow. So she's she's done a number on me. Um, she's very unique. She's very special. There's something about her, and... And yeah, she's just a reminder of the the very loving, the very innocent and uh animal spirits that are out there that if we give if we're willing to give them a second of our time to pay attention, to turn around and look, 
and to maybe feel what they are experiencing in the same place that we are living, that our own worlds can be transformed. Mm. And so she reminds me of that every day, and it really gives me a power to keep moving forward and to keep moving at a bigger level to save more animals. Wow, thank you for sharing that. You're right, she does. She is this incredible spirit. And I'll say, you know, in having you here at our home with our three dogs, she has not barked once. She's very quiet, but she's very powerful and strong. And it's a... And our dogs, of course, are these little white, yappy-type, wonderful dogs <laughs> that, that just want to be heard. And and Luca is very serene and calm and quiet, and I've, I've rarely experienced an animal like that. And so she's clearly, that's a beautiful adaptation that she's taken on and, and just as who she is, um, I think... You know, any dog being on their own knows that non-aggression is the best way to fit in. And, of course, that applies to people, too. You know, in our world, if we want to create peace, we've got to be peaceful people um, mm-hmm. or be willing to to consult, to talk, to uh, to focus on, on all of our needs, not just what maybe each of us thinks we want. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what got you into animal rescue or animal activism when you were a kid. Did it start when you were young? It started when I was very young, yeah. I I just say that I was born into it. And um, I um, somehow I, I was gifted all the feelings. And, uh, you know, as a kid and being that one who doesn't want to eat meat and being that one who um, – in a room full of kids, we'll choose the dog to hang out with. And <laughs> yeah. were you, were I you shy? Um, I was very introverted, and I found a safe space with animals. I felt okay. like we we had a way of communicating, or I just felt like I could communicate on a d- deeper level with them, especially as a child and growing into my adolescence when we still have that belief in something much greater um, where the mystery is still alive, like the possibility of anything is still very much alive. And I found with animals that it was like an access to what was possible. And oh, I like that. Um, yeah, so it's been in me, and and over the years it has cultivated different kinds of external experiences, but um, by the time it was time for me to go to college, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and study animal behavior, and so I found a university that did not have an animal testing program to go along with their animal behavior degree, and so I completed my bachelor's in animal behavior. My thesis was in postural communication within Western Lowland gorillas in zoological institutions because we have an overpopulation of males in captivity at the moment. Um, and so I was looking at the possibility of maybe housing males together and would that be safe for them and um, would it be sustainable and long-lasting? Could they have lifelong relationships with each other being a male group in captivity? Because normally 
um, there's only one or two males in a gorilla family. So, in the um, wild. <laughs> right, right, in the wild. And and then after graduation, I went on the path of being uh, a zoologist, zookeeper, working in animal behavior and doing a lot of animal behavior research in captivity. And that only blossomed into an interest into the wild. And so my first wild project was in Indonesia, and I went to study with the Orangutan Health Project on, in North Sumatra. And um, I was there for a while looking at um, what kinds of parasites and, and nat- natural herbs and leaves and barks and things that they eat in the wild to what do they ingest to cure uh, parasite infections. And at the same time, we were counting population numbers, so doing the nest counts and figuring out where are these animals li- living because if we could establish that data, then we could present a case for forest protection. And it mm-hmm essential that every last bit of forest in Indonesia at the moment gets to stay the way it is. It has to. Um, And so that was a really, a really fun time to be in Indonesia and doing that work. And, um, and, and then after conservation, I got into animal rescue, direct hands-on animal response, emergency response, and um, worked as an emergency relief responder for, for a number of years, going around the world to where disasters would strike, mudslides, floods, oil spills, anything, and building relationships with local communities to establish a response system and a sheltering in place and whether it needed to be rehab and released into the wild or um, just temporary care for companion animals. And really, it was in that work that I came face-to-face with farming practices around the world and realized that we were responding to these disaster situations, but the animals we were treating were largely being treated for pre-existing conditions. Animals in the farm industry are not taken care of. And it really, I mean, I at that point was a vegan and I was not eating meat or dairy. Um, I had already made that choice for myself. But after seeing this on a um, regular basis around the world, (laughs) I felt like I wanted to do something about it. I just, I wanted to shift the meat-heavy movement towards something not including animals. And that's where that entrepreneur spirit popped up and said, (laughs) go to middle of Appalachia Appalachia, and open yourself a vegan cafe. And (laughs) so (laughs) that's how that happened. Um, And along with my mom, and we and the education we did together and mom becoming a natural food educator we were able to like really create a good menu for a community that was looking for a, a non-meat alternative and was looking for healthier alternatives and so um yeah it was it was a great place to be and it really reached out to a lot of people 
um, I ended up selling the business and moving back into wildlife conservation after about eight years of running that cafe <laughs> and um, <laughs> jumped right back into parrot work. I went straight to Costa Rica and helped a project there um, that was, that's working to reestablish the um, native macaw population in Costa Rica. Um, so I have a couple of things come to mind. I want to stop you for a sure. second, and that is... Um, and thanks for the beautiful stories. Um, so back to the cafe for a minute. Have you put out a recipe book or some wonderful menus that you've been able to share on a larger audience than just in your cafe? Have you thought sure. of it? Sure. Um, yes, okay, I do have it. a recipe book. Yay. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm yeah. sure those listening, if they want a non-meat alternative, I mean, there's lots out there, obviously, but... But you did have a challenge by going to a place that probably had very limited choices of, that were were vegetarian or vegan and came up with wonderful menus. So where can we find that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what I'm going to do is, so the recipe book is an e-book. So what I'm going to mm-hmm. do is post a photo of it on Instagram right after this, and it'll have Perfect. a link in that okay. photo to where it can be purchased. Excellent. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. And then and then back to Indonesia for a moment. Wasn't there a disaster that was there when you were actually, that happened when you were there? I seem to remember you being flooded out or something. Right. Or am I so remembering incorrectly? I ultimately had to leave the project because our field station was flooded. We lost everything. Yeah. We lost all of the accommodations, all the data, our herbarium, everything. Wow. And that was you lived through the result. Disasters before. Yeah, it, it's it, it, that was a result. Yeah, like, there's a rainy season in the jungle, and everybody's used to it. You get a lot of rain, um, and everybody lives according to how the earth behaves. And but this particular flood was caused by logs from logging that were way miles and miles and miles up the river in the jungle that had just been piled up. And it, it the the water was able to have enough strength this one evening to push those logs downstream. And oh so all the wood, everything came down, and that's what demolished um, an entire village. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what has been the hardest thing? I mean, perhaps this is that is the answer, but what's been the hardest thing to witness when you've been on these kinds of mm, international expeditions? Well, I think it's the um it's just the constant reminder of the scale of need. And with every year and with every incident that happens, uh with every cry for help, there are more and more people that show up and organizations who are raising money to be able to get boots on the ground. Um but sometimes the scale of the desperation um is challenging to really digest. There's just there's issues everywhere right now, and you, and it's largely a result of human impact. Like there is, we could 
be behaving differently on this planet and things would be better. It's that simple. So when you but, say behave differently, I may I go back to, you know, you studied animal behavior, but we're talking now about human behavior. How could we mm-hmm. behave differently that would make a difference? It's in the everyday choices that we make and what we consume and what we purchase and how much we consume um, and being conscious of of the balance between what we are offering to the planet, what good we are we are reinvesting in the earth, and what we are taking away. And um, so how does one know? Right, it's not what everyone thinks about, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm sure it's not in everyone's mind first thing in the morning either. Yeah. Um, it gets, and I know you. Gets, well, I, I was just going to put a shout out to Whole Foods. I know that there are organizations like that 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 are at least their mission is on the right track. I I haven't investigated mm-hmm. them thoroughly, but I feel good about when I buy things at Whole Foods that is coming from a sustainable source. But how do we know? I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to do their own research. Mm-hmm. And and I agree with you. Um, I am, currently am employed by Whole Foods, and I for years I've appreciated that outlet of sustainable products <clears throat> and access to plant-based products, you know, like 20 years ago when you couldn't mm-hmm. find them at other retail stores. Um, but consumer demand for everything has gone up to a point where now even Whole Foods has to um, uh, increase their reach beyond what is truly sustainable. So, sure, the products are better, um, but they're not the best anymore. And even when it comes to sourcing meat and dairy, um, I... I challenge some of those ethics, and I I hope that with by being bought out by Amazon, that that's not going to impact the core values of the company. Um, that there won't be a shift towards um, competition. They'll mm-hmm. continue to be a, a a rooting in core values, is what I'm hoping. But, you know, only time will tell. Well, and what we're finally getting at is it's really about teaching the humans who purchase, as you're saying, at any of these institutes, you know, these companies, these organizations, uh, these grocery stores mm-hmm. and, and online can have the knowledge of the, or the willpower, I guess is really what it is, for the ethics to be part of their purchasing choices. Mm-hmm. So... so I know you've done so much animal activism, animal rescue. Have you found that people, like like you said, in West Virginia people were looking, which was great to mm-hmm. hear, uh, just as I'm sure they are everywhere. Have you found that people are really wanting to know, wanting to make a better choice? I do feel, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm... 
I'm not convinced that it's for the welfare of animals. I'm more convinced that it's just for health and well-being, which is completely okay. You know, a lot of people, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we're just seeing our human bodies um, metastasize and, and become these, these, I don't know. Like we're taking on diseases, we're taking on cancers, we're taking on all of these things at a rate that is not healthy for most of America. And so there are a lot of people who are intuitively are are beginning to understand that mm-hmm. what you are putting into your bodies um is the problem. Right. And and our and our physicians are finally talking about that as well, which is good to know. Finally, yeah. It seems to be that more and more are beginning to talk about nutrition or awareness of, you're right, what we put in our bodies makes a difference. Mm-hmm. So a self-serving um, <laughs> choice is, is a good one, though. I mean, it makes sense. What affects me and my body and my health is going to be a priority for me or for anyone uh, just using me as an example, that uh, even though animal welfare is a is a it's a secondary, it's it's all about first survival. Mm-hmm. So how do we expand it to animal welfare? Um, I always challenge people: Why not care? Sure, we we don't have to. We don't have to look at it. We have our choices, and we want what we want. Or you could care. So why not? Like, what's what is um, so? What makes it so difficult to look at the truth? Mm, and the truth. the truth is what happens behind closed doors. Mm. All the reasons why the USDA does not allow anybody to see what happens behind closed doors, and the average American does not look know what a farm looks like. They have a like, picturesque image in their mind of a green pasture and happy animals. And we do have a lot of local farms um, which can provide that imagery, but that is not what's feeding America. I mean, even to the extent that we have outgrown ourselves and are outsourcing our ranching to places in the Amazon. And now the Amazon's on fire. And so we have reached a point of becoming unsustainable. I mean, I don't think until we started to see this fire explode in the media and everybody becoming awakened to what was happening, um, not only for people, you know, um, but for the planet and for all the animals involved. I don't think most people understood that that is a result of farming, of eating hamburgers. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, you're right. We don't make the Mm -hmm. connection generally. We've heard it, but in driving to an appointment and being hungry and not having lunch, it's a very convenient thing to go through one of these drive-thrus and grab a hamburger or something similar. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It is convenient. And so that's why uh, there are plant-based alternatives that are trying to be in that market now as well. Right. And exactly. we're seeing the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger and the meat alternatives being placed into those venues because that's those, what, are those, those are the choices we made. Do I think is making a difference? Mm-hmm. Do you think um, that those kinds of meat alternatives are are making or will make a difference? I think so. It it looks positive at the moment. I think okay. KFC sold out in a <laughs> matter of hours the first day they launched their um, chicken nuggets that were vegan. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so in other words, people are looking for a choice. And that we haven't had a yeah. choice. Right. Mm-hmm. And the cheaper the better. So let's be honest. Of yeah. We <laughs> of convenient and cheap. That's what we want. And so there are some big players in the market now that are trying to get the meatless alternatives out there and I think that's great. Mm-hmm. So how does let's get back to parrots, because I know that is your passion at the moment. How yeah. would all of this affect new farming practices? or new choices by consumers as far as to uh, to affect the farming practices affect the parrots? Hmm. Well, um, so if we're talking about, <laughs> if we're talking about wild populations, um, we haven't really reached a point where the wild is infiltrated with its natural species where parrots are concerned. So while parrots are, they they can be predators on seeds and particular kinds of trees um, that might be farming in certain areas, um, there are ways to mitigate that, but there is plenty of forest that could inhabit parrots the problem is is that we are taking them out of their home and putting them into pet trade or taking their eggs out of the nest and putting them into pet trade. Okay, or, so let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> so this has been going on for years, years and years and years. Um, and it's all part of what what is now is supposed to be a regulated system, Um and it is getting better, but there are parrots that are poached and kidnapped from the, for, from the wild for multiple reasons. Um, it could be for meat, it could be for pet trade, or it could be for their parts. So, um, like, there's a, a bird, a hornbill in Indonesia right now that is being poached just for its hornbill. Mm. Um yeah. So it's hard yeah. to have a conservation-driven project in the wild to um, to breed these endangered species for re-release or reintroduction when there's such a high level of poaching that's happening right now. And well, so, so, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to take you in another direction, but I don't want to, so keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are a lot more boots on the ground now that are working to keep an eye on on all of this that's happening. 
and um, and especially uh, on the borders and, and border control, making sure that nothing is getting smuggled out. There's still a lot that does get traded, and and the U.S. isn't necessarily included in the import and the export to the degree that like um, Dubai is, Indonesia is, and the Middle East is and definitely South America because we have we have legislation locally the international um the the wild bird conservation act that banned the import of exotic birds into the United States. So as of 2001, it's illegal to import a bird into the United States. So we're not necessarily perpetuating the problem of of capture and purchase However, we do have a very unregulated system of endangered birds breeding in the United States for our own pet trade. Yeah, let's talk about the pet trade. You're right, because parrots are cute and exotic and colorful and wonderful. You know, they talk, and and I can see them being a very attractive choice for some. Mm -hmm. But what, what is... Wrong with that picture. <laughs> if you will. Um, they are all of those things. They re- they are, um, and they're incredibly intelligent. So what's wrong with it is that they are flighted individuals, and in order for us to enjoy their company or be entertained by them, we have to clip their wings, and we have to force them to live in cages. That's not. There is nothing natural about that. Period. Right. And no flighted animal who flies miles a day should be forced to live in a cage. And so at the moment, we in the United States, we do have a lot of parrots who do need homes because they have been raised in captivity and will never be allowed to be reintroduced to the wild anywhere. Um, some of them are missing most of their feathers. Some of them have self-mutilated. And there's all kinds of conditions. These animals live a very long time. Parrots can live 60 years and beyond. So I don't think most people understand that when, if they do make that purchase, that they are investing in 60 years and beyond with an animal. And um, Yeah, that's a long time. It's not like having your kids out when they go to college. <laughs> right. They're they're with you mm-hmm. for your entire life, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. It's your, your entire life. And as cute as they are, they are loud. They chew. <laughs> they are meant to communicate across miles in the forest. They're meant to tear down trees one at a time. And, and these are things that we just can't adapt to. We don't want mm-hmm. that in our house. So I've seen parrots with their beaks taped shut with their tongues oh, cut out. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and locked in a cage for the rest of their life because their owners don't want them running around the house chewing up their couches or their curtains or whatever it is. And so they so just this, don't make good pets. So this brings me to a, a thought of, and it's a much longer conversation for another time, of, you know, back to the way that we treat animals, the way we think about animals, you just said they don't adapt to our human way of living or the, what we consider to be acceptable. It's about remembering that these are different species with different adaptations, with different needs, 
that we can't always mm-hmm. make change to what we, you know, our civilized, quote-unquote, urban society living demands, which would be quiet from your neighbor in an apartment building and, uh, you know, being able to go away to work and leave your parrot at home and we're in a cage. I mean, that's just, you're right. It's not compatible as far as species well-being for either one. So what about the policy? I know you work in activism as far as wanting to change policy. Mm -hmm. We don't have in place these policies that help regulate the well-being of parrots? Right. You would think that it's illegal for somebody to cut out the tongue of a parrot, and that would be deemed inhumane, and they would either get a ticket, have to pay $50, or go to jail. Um, But none of that exists because parrots are not included in state animal welfare legislation or federal animal welfare legislation. And so I would like to see a couple things. One, number one, being included in the Federal Animal Welfare Act that protects animals from any kind of abuse. And at the moment, avians, whether it's a parrot or um, a chicken, or a pigeon, (laughs) any kind of bird species is not included in the Animal Welfare Act. So I'd like to get parrots in there. Um, So what is included? Companion animals, um, horses, um, and then marine mammals are protected under the Marine Mammal Act, and um, native species are protected. In farm under the endangered species category. Yeah, farm animals don't have protection either. Okay, they're just Got it. they're they're left out as well, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but there are a number of states now that have adopted exotic um, exotic wildlife bills, and they come in, in various forms and names. Um, but basically, these exotic animal bills are designed to Um, limit or completely eliminate the sale of exotic animals, tigers, bears, leopards, um, within the state or from the state outside. And they are beginning to um, remove the the number of licenses that people can have to exhibit these animals. So it's it's a great movement to begin protecting exotic wildlife from being bred in captivity and showed at very cheaply run roadside zoos or from being kept in somebody's backyard. Um, but every single time these exotic bills are introduced, with parrots included, they're taken out. And the powerful source behind that are the parrot breeders. There are parrot breeders in the United States who are completely running this operation, making lots of money on selling baby parrots for thousands of dollars and have no responsibility or accountability for the now sanctuaries that have to go up for the rescue of these birds that are being sold because the owners just don't want them anymore. So if policy was put in place, then they would be under something like the USDA or the Department of Interior and would be regulated to then either have to contribute to sanctuaries or to have some kind of um, laws Mm -hmm. in place of responsibility or ultimately be shut down, correct? 
Right. Yeah. So I'd like to see the breeding of all parrots end in the United States. But let's first start with the endangered species. So we are actively working to protect endangered species in the wild, which we do, like the African gray parrot. We should also be actively protecting them in the United States by banning them from being sold as pets. Absolutely, 100%. So if they are listed as an endangered species under CITES, the international governing body, then we should be doing our work to abide by that. Um, and so what's it going to take to I, make that happen? Well, go ahead and finish what you were saying. <laughs> um, so that's going to take an amendment to the AWA, the Animal Welfare Act, okay, with some strength behind it, some strength and some research, and it is happening. There are a number of us who have really been building a case for a number of years, um, and so I believe that amendment will be proposed sooner than later in the next couple years. Um, and then I would like to see on the state level some regulation happening for breeders where they have to have a small business license. They have to pay sales tax. They have to be inspected. All of these things, it's not, it's not happening. So none of those um, are, are included right now. Oh, my goodness. Right. Um, and then a portion of paying for a business license would go to a fund that would help uh, rescue sanctuaries be able to operate. So, I mean, we're seeing abandonment and the need for rescue for companion parrots across the United States at an unsustainable scale. There are warehouses filled with thousands of unwanted parrot pets with nowhere for them to go, nowhere for them to live happy, healthy lives for the rest of their 60 years. And it's a result of people at the top making money on selling the babies so that customers can have that enjoyable experience of raising a baby bird. Hmm, my goodness. So what would be, so what goes through my mind when you say that is, we could better teach kids about raising birds if we did it in biology class in elementary school or, you know, about uh, when a bird falls out of the nest, basically don't touch it here, watch the mother come down and get it and feed it or, um, or put it back in the nest and help. In other words, working with the wild so that they can mm-hmm. have these personalized experiences and not have to purchase a wild animal to have in their house that obviously goes wrong after just a f- few months or years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, then you're getting at the, um, and and by the way, we're getting close to the end of the show. <laughs> so, um, so we have another five minutes or so to, to wrap up this conversation, but oh my goodness, you're getting, it feels like, um, just the same as dogs and cats, although it's different because we're talking about wildlife versus domesticated animals. But still the breeding of dogs and cats is also not uh, under control or uh, has difficulty and the humane societies around the world are obviously overpowered by the numbers of animals that are abandoned. So we're talking mm-hmm. really about the human relationship to the wild, uh, to to the non-human species around the planet. And there's got to be a better way than just 
quote, owning them or purchasing them and bringing them into our our human apartments, houses, mm-hmm. lives, to experience that, the beauty of those creatures. Mm-hmm. And obviously get right. the economics out of it. That's, that's the main source of mm, the problem. I, I think if anybody is called to help him, if you have it in you to feel like you want to, you want to be a better part of these animals' lives, then there are things we can do as individuals. We can we can build our own backyard sanctuary. We can build our own wildlife reserve in our backyard. We can contribute to a single building to be used to house. 10 birds for the rest of their lives to live a happy life and maybe, you know, go there, help take care of mm-hmm. them every once in a while. But there, there are sanctuaries who are, who are staffed and can do this. So if we can just find our own individual ways to want to help, then we get that satisfaction of interacting with the animals and knowing where we are helping. And we, we get to have that. They all then become part of our lives. We don't have to have them as pets. We can help create and maintain spaces and worlds and places in the wild for them to live, and we and we get that sense of coexistence with them. Excellent. Thank you for that. That feels that we're basically basically each creating our own what I'll call a peace park. That is our place where we can go out and enjoy nature as it exists or help those, as you said, that are have already been plucked from nature and help them survive in a more natural way that we can experience. It almost exactly. feels like every school could do something like that, and that would help um, certainly teach the next generations to to undo what we've typically done in our menageries and uh, collections of caring for animals in a more hum- human way uh, that actually doesn't, that is not appropriate or making them economic, um, sources of economic revenue that they obviously are not to be bought and sold. Um, mm-hmm. Just like we don't buy and sell human beings or shouldn't be buying and selling that's laws against that. It's not <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, changing the mindset. Thank you, Jennifer. What what last words of wisdom would you have for our listeners then? Oh, boy. Um, well, let's keep an eye on this hurricane, and uh, let's also keep an eye on the animals that might need some help, the ones who are usually left behind or the animal shelters that are going to probably have to rebuild and clean up, and that's not to take away from human suffering at all. We are all brothers and sisters, and we should be taking care of each other. We just tend to ignore the others. So Mm. let's see what happens with this hurricane and as we get into hurricane season and to maybe start contributing in ways that we haven't helped animals before. Excellent. Go volunteer at your local animal shelter and work with them and support them. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for all the different animal rescues. How does one find a local animal rescue in your area? They seem to be everywhere these days. Yeah, Google, humane societies, local animal rescues. If they say animal rescue in their name, help them. (laughs) Okay. 
Oh, I love it. That's a that's a broad stroke, and it works. Right. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, Jennifer, for being on the Peace Brain Show. I really appreciate it and sharing your your um, animal travels throughout your life so far. And uh, and we wish you well in in what you're going to accomplish in the future. Thank you. It's been great, Gail. It's been great. So again, everyone, you can. We've been talking with Jennifer Miller, and you can find more about her on Instagram. Her name on Instagram is Jen J E N underscore of the jungle. So you can find out more, and she's going to be posting a link to her recipes, vegan recipes, vegetarian recipes that she had from Mission Savvy, her cafe in in um, Charleston, West West Virginia, on that page as well, and much more about how you can support animal activism and animal rescue around the world to help our brothers and sisters. So so take a breath. Huh. We're toward the end of the show. I want to lead us into a peace brain meditation for a few minutes. So just take a breath and be present. Be here. I invite you to either close your eyes or, or not. It's up to you. Ah. But think about the world outside of you. Well, first of all, think about the animals that maybe you have in your household that are actually living with you. And whatever species they are, send gratitude and love to them because they have agreed in some form or, or another to be in your life and to bring you joy and love and to teach you about the animal kingdom. Hopefully they are a domesticated animal that at least through the centuries and millennia have learned to live in our human societies. If they're not, then maybe if they are a wild endangered species or some kind of wild animal, then think about how you can best provide what it needs or perhaps work with a sanctuary that works with those species to provide it a life that works for you and that animal. So take a breath and feel the connection, feel the love and the gratitude that you have for the animal kingdom and that the animal kingdom has for you. For in truth, when you walk outside and you hear the birds sing and you hear the frogs croak and the cicadas sing and the wind blow and the trees sway, we are all of that same energy. So feel those connections. Know that you have nature all around you and you can be entertained by it. You can be enlightened by it. You can receive wisdom from it. It is a great teacher. So I invite you next time when you walk outside your window, walk outside your door, that you ask, what can I learn from the natural, natural elements around me, the natural animals, the trees, the water, the wind, from those species? And, and get curious. I invite you to do some research. Who are your local species? What do they need? And can you provide that in your backyard? think about right now how you might be able to adapt your space, your outdoor space, for the wild 
animals to support them, including the squirrels, <laughs> who sometimes eat all the wonderful food that we put out. That's okay. It's all part of the ecosystem. It's all part of learning the lessons from the animal kingdom. Kind of a big Aesop's Fable book, <laughs> Living Right Around You. So take a breath and be present with all of those living creatures that are either in your home or right outside your home, in the city around you, in the farms around you. And then I invite you to also do research and, as Jen was saying, learn about the farming practices in the United States, in your own country, and make some choices that help support the animal kingdom, which may mean may mean going vegan. It may mean cutting down on your supply of meat. It may mean choosing the Impossible Burger at your local drive through restaurant. So check that out and see how you feel. I know learning some of the things that we do as human beings that are not ethical, that are horrible, can be quite shocking, can be... Um, quite disappointing, quite terrible. But know that you can make a difference. You can make a difference by your choice. And then your choice is then seen by others, for we are all models to others, particularly the children. So thank you for connecting with the animal kingdom. Thank you for caring. That's the first step, really caring to notice the world around you, and tuning in today here, Jennifer Miller, and all about the animals that we can rescue and help. And thank you for tuning in to the Peace Brain Show. I really appreciate it, and much um, love and support to all of you who are in the path of any disaster, whether it be this hurricane that currently is hitting the coast of the United States or and has hit other countries or any future disasters, we do need to start paying attention to our world and the way that we interact with our environment uh, through our, our choices of our fuel, our food, our actions. So I invite you to do that. <laughs> so thanks again for turning into the Peace Brain Show. Have a beautiful evening, and I hope you... Um, Go activate your peace brain and create your own peace park and put it on our World Peace Trails map. Namaste. Many blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the Peace Brain Show. You can find us at tourismforpeace.com. Be sure to check out Dr. Gale's Akashic Records readings her peace master plans for your business or organization, and her book, Hashtag Opt for Peace, Nine Essential Steps to Achieving Peace, Power, and Prosperity. Tune in to BBS Radio, Station One, every other Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern to the Peace Brain Show for your installment of wonder, inspiration, and practical peace.